Lord, we thank you again for the time that we've had to, to be here this morning to, to think of those that have given their, their lives in service for their, for their country, who, who have um, given us the peace that we have. But thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can also, and most importantly, remember you, who is the ultimate sacrifice for each one of us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died on that cross for each one and that you rose again. As we sang just a minute ago, that, that you will return. There will be great celebration. Our great commission complete, then we will see you face to face. What a glorious and amazing day that will be to see you face to face. We pray for the children now as they've gone out. Just pray you'll be with them. Help the, the teachers as they uh, teach them more about you and um, some of the maybe some of the, the basics of, of, of the, the Christian life or the Christian walk or, or basic stories. But thank you, Lord Jesus, that throughout your word, we can get so much about you and how that you are a loving and a faithful God. So we just pray for these young lives that have gone out. Pray you'll continue to be with them, be with the parents as they uh, bring them up in the way that they should go. Um, but we pray for us all um, in here as well, Lord, that, that whatever age we are, that we are here to to learn to be to be more like you um thank you for phil being with us this morning pray you'll um bless him as he as he as he speaks just uh, give him the the freedom of, of words to say but freedom um f for you just to speak through him um give him the words that that we need to to hear this morning and that is the key isn't it that we need need to hear help us to to take these words in to use them to to maybe uh ponder and reflect on them but lord help us to to change to be challenged and to be more like you in the things that we do in jesus name we pray amen well it's nice to be with you again particularly on remembrance sunday i don't know if you like me we're watching the program last night from the royal albert hall remind me when i was a kid and uh, I used to be allowed to stay up and watch it. Hopefully, if Dad didn't notice, I'd stay up for match of the day afterwards as well. <laughs> and that pit when the, potly, uh, the poppy petals fall from the ceiling. I remember my dad crying his eyes out at that stage. Because for him, you know, it isn't just sort of a fact of history, but it was people that he went to school with, people from his church that were lost in the Second World War. And I thought what was particularly moving last night as well was the time when they had a march for those who'd recently lost loved ones. As we tend to think of it as, a, as something from history, remembering the First and the Second World War. But they were reminded that there is conflict still going on now where people are losing loved ones. Steve Turner, the Christian poet, once wrote a little poem that said this, the only thing that we learn from history is that we never learn from history. And there's a lad from Exeter School, my school. I'd like to say I was at school with him, but he's much younger than me, called Jack Sadler, and he was killed a few years ago in Afghanistan. And we had the funeral service at Belmont Chapel for him a few years ago. There's still pain and sorrow for what happened at that time. We're going to uh, read together Acts chapter 9. So our passage this morning, Acts chapter 9. And verse 32 down to the end. So Acts chapter 9 verse 32. And it says this, as Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. 
Aeneas Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and tidy up your mat. And immediately Aeneas got up. And all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. And in Joppa there was a, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated is Dorcas, who was always doing good and helping the poor. And about that time she became sick and died. And her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. And Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. And all the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. And Peter sent them all out of the room, then he got down on his knees and prayed. And turning towards the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. And this became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Amen. There's one invention that I think I'm really grateful for. It's the digital recorder. Because there's one thing I hate with a passion is adverts on the telly. Now, occasionally you get the nice advert. I, I love the ones about John Smith's bitter with Peter Kay, if any of you remember those. And there's one for head and shoulders at the moment, Claudia Winkleman, which is a little bit funny. But most of them are such dreary, terrible things. You know, you see the ones for women's perfume. You haven't got a clue what it smells like. You do see some sort of woman, or, or, or the one for cars. You know, I don't know whether it's what it does at naught to 60. I don't know whether I can still play my old cassettes and CDs in the car. It doesn't really tell you anything about it at all. So I'm really pleased that with a digital recorder, you can just sort of jump over most of these adverts. But if there's one advert I hate more than anything else, and I know it's not aimed at me, and perhaps I shouldn't hate it, but if you put up the next slide, it's this one. The one for L'Oreal in Paris. And it says this, because you're worth it. Or I'm worth it. And that strap line goes there as well. And, and, and it's the whole sort of ethos behind advertising that what is really important is forget about everybody else. All that matters is yourself. Because you're worth it. Doesn't really matter if you've got the money. Doesn't really matter. Just go out and get that thing and your life will be much better. You're just rewarding yourself. And it's that sort of concentration on looking after, number one, that the most important thing that these adverts peddle is this lie that it's important to be happy, look after no one, one, on one, and no one else matters. It's all because you're worth it. I wonder what would have happened during the Second World War if soldiers had thought like that and not gone off to battle. We would be in a very different situation, wouldn't we? And I think the story that we've read this morning, and I particularly want to concentrate on the story of Tabitha or Dorcas. I don't know which name you would prefer if you were her, ladies, but, you know, that name that she had. And I think this stands as a direct, powerful argument this morning that being a Christian is not about looking after number one, but it's all about a life of service. And if you put up the next slide, we'll find out that she lived in a place called Joppa, which is this place here highlighted in red. Joppa was one of the oldest seaports in Israel. It was established about four and a half thousand years ago and is known today as Jaffa, as in Jaffa Gates. And it sits on a cliff overlooking the Mediterranean Sea, about 35 miles northwest of Jerusalem. 
It was on something called the Via Maris. It was a trade route that used to go from Egypt down to Syria. So a lot of trade used to come through that port. And like most ports, no doubt, it was a place of great contrast. There would be those that would be fabulously wealthy, the merchants who had big houses, who'd done well out of the trade. And then you had the poor people that used to work in the ports who wouldn't have had much, perhaps lived in slightly slum housing. And if you think you recognize the name, it was also the port from where Jonah tried to run away from the Lord all those years ago. In 2 Chronicles 2, it's the place where the wood cut in Lebanon by Hiram's men for Solomon was landed. And in Ezra 3, verse 7, where they used to land the materials that was brought in to build the second temple. (coughs) So here in this place, you have a lady called Tabitha or Dorcas, whatever you want to call her, that, that was living. And if you notice something about her, as we read these verses together, something... Anybody notice particularly? You don't read one single word that she ever said. We haven't got a clue what she said. We don't really know what she was like. If you read a newspaper story, they may something like, you know, Kevin Bartlett, age 63, uh, <laughs> director of Top Catch, whatever that means that he does in life, I don't know, a reasonable husband. You know, they, they give that sort of little description of what somebody is like. But we don't know anything at all about Tabitha, about what she looked like. We don't know whether she was old or whether she was young. We don't know whether she had been married at one stage or single or even a widow. We don't know whether she sort of would run her own business. We don't really know very much about her at all. Not one single word that she said is recorded in Scripture. It's a on the eye, isn't it, for us preachers? We love to spout words. And us lawyers who love to use long words and use them to to try and confuse people. See, because whilst the words that sometimes we use are important, I think this is a story that's saying isn't just the words that are important. It's what the people are like. I helped take a funeral on Wednesday. You know, we spoke a lot about a friend of mine called Brian Knowles. But it was most about what he was like as a person. Because the Bible wasn't particularly interested in just the words that she used, but was the type of person that she was. And if you put up the next slide, we find out that some descriptions about her. In verse of all, we find out in verse 36 that she was a disciple. Well, it's a Syrian name, Dorcas or Tabitha. It means gazelle. I don't know whether she looked like that or not. I'm named Philip. It's supposed to mean lover of horses. I can't stand the things. You know, when I was a little kid, about two or three, apparently my uh, uh, nanny took me up to the field at the top and the horse started munching the top of my head and started eating my hair. That, that's my excuse why I'm a bit bold on top, you know. But sometimes people are inappropriately named. I don't know whether she was, looked like a gazelle or whether she looked like more of a cart horse. I don't know. Perhaps when I get to heaven, I'll look her out and find out what she did look like. But at the end of the day, it says that she was a disciple. She was a follower of Jesus Christ. And that was more important than what she looked like, what she sounded, or what she said. Proverbs 13, 13 and 20. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. James 1, verse 27. Religion that God accepts as pure and faultless is to look after widows in their distress. You see, this was what was important about her life. Not the money that she made, the type of house that she lived in, whether she was married in a relationship or anything else, but that she was a disciple of Jesus Christ. And in fact, this is so special, this is the only place in the New Testament where the feminine form of disciple is actually used. 
She was special. She was somebody whose heart was following after Jesus Christ. It wasn't just an intellectual thing for her that she believed it, but that she put it into practice. And, you know, I'm conscious as I go around to churches and to preach and meet Christians that sometimes the true disciples are not always the ones that are most obvious. And some of us who stand up the front and visible and we spout off a lot of words may not be the ones that are the true disciples. I don't know what she was like in her church. I don't know whether she said anything, whether she took part or just used to go along. But she had a heart that was dedicated to living for her Lord. She was a true disciple. And then we read something else as well in verse 36 as well. She did something else, that she was doing good and helping the poor. 2 Timothy 3 verse 2 says this, People in the last days will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, ungrateful, and unholy. Are there enough people around like that today? And yet here was a woman whose first concern was not for herself, but it was to serve the Lord with the ability that he had given her. She was a seamstress. She was a good dressmaker. She could have used her skill in order to make money. But in fact, more important for her was to serve her Lord and to help the poor. Matthew 26, that passage there, talks about the sheep and the goats. And Jesus says, when I needed clothes and you clothed me. And they said, "Whatever you did, when did we do it, Jesus? And they said, whenever you did it for the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. Galatians 2 verse 10, we should continue to remember the poor. It's not always an easy job, is it? I was walking down the high street in Exeter one lunchtime this week, and there was a chap sat there at lunchtime on his old filthy sleeping bag in the doorway of what used to be Costa Coffee before it burnt down opposite Marks and Spencer's. And there was a lady sat there talking to him, presumably some sort of outreach worker. Well, he was poor. He was homeless. He certainly smelt a bit as he walked past. He certainly didn't have a lot to offer. Yet here she was reaching out to him. Not always an easy work, but it's an important work. One of the friends that my daughter Meg had at university, uh, the parents live in Hollywood, just outside of Belfast, not Hollywood, L.A. And one of the things that their church do is they go around after the end of a working day, and they collect all the old food from the cafe that they don't want to sell, or from supermarkets, it's coming to the sell-by date, and they take it to a homeless center where they feed the poor. She helped the poor, and she did good. Her faith wasn't just a case of believing, but it was a faith that was put into action as well. And then we put up the next slide, we find out something else as well. I love this little word, don't you? She was always helping the poor. Oh, if only that applied to me a bit more often. You know, it's not very consistent sometimes in my life. I'm on a diet, but only sometimes. Sometimes I want to worship the Lord, but not always. Sometimes I feel a bit down or fed up or things haven't gone well. But she was always helping the poor. Titus 3 verse 14, learn to devote yourselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs, not live unproductive lives. Galatians 9, let us not become weary in doing good. She devoted herself to what she did for the Lord, always doing it. It wasn't a question of, oh, I'll have five minutes off or I don't feel like doing it today. 
but she was always doing it. Do you know one of the sad things that some churches say to me is that, oh, you know, we have trouble finding people, particularly to run youth groups or uh, Sunday school classes. We often have to say, oh, I can do it next Tuesday or next Sunday, but I can't then do it for three weeks. She was consistent. She wasn't just when it suited her, but she used her gift in order to serve the Lord. And then the next one we also read about her as well is something else, that she was a seamstress, verse 39, uh, that she made these clothes. And when she died, the widows were happy to show them. When I was a kid, my mother made us all learn to knit and to sew. I got out of crocheting, thank goodness, like that. But we had to knit and sew. And she said, I don't care if you're girls or boys, you're all going to learn the same. I soon gave up the knitting, and you'd understand why if you saw what I knitted. But when I was at university, learning to sew was quite good. A number of times my rugby shorts or shirts got ripped, and I could actually mend them. Yeah, I've certainly given it up now, I hasten to add. But I was a far better sewer than I am. But, you know, some people have got natural abilities, and some people haven't. You know, some people think that the ability to stand up and preach is sort of God-given, but if you have ability to do something practical, it's not. If you look in Exodus chapter 31, do you see what it says there? I have filled Baal with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, with all kinds of skills to engage in all kinds of crafts. You see, the ability that she had to sew and to make clothes that didn't fall apart, but clothes, you know, do, do you ever get a, 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 a jumper knitted by your great auntie, you know, when you were younger? And, and the arms, you saw either one came down here and the other one was sort of up there. And then the, sort of the jumper was sort of a bit like this and it, it was in a color, it was totally inappropriate. And you think, thank you very much, auntie. I love to wear that sometimes. And off it goes into the, you know, and, and nobody wants to touch it again. But, you know, she made things that people were proud to show. She had a great ability, but she didn't use it for ourselves, but she used it in order that she could serve the poor. Job 31, verse 19. Job says, I could not see anyone without acting, anyone perishing for the lack of clothing or a needy man with a garment. What ability and skill has God given you? And are you using that? I often say to people, if you give me a hammer, I can destroy your church. To give me a pen or a computer, I may be able to do some degree of help. God has given us all different abilities and different skills. He put up the next slide. I don't know if you're like me, but ever you watch a film, I, I always make sure that I sit and watch right to the very end. It really annoys some of you know. Although my kids have got into because apparently on Disney films, I never heard this until recently. At the end of all the Disney films, if you watch the credits right to the end, they have a list of all the babies that were born during the filming uh, or the preparation of the film to members of the crew. So if you want to watch to the end, that's quite interesting on Disney. That's what quite got me into it. But you know, when you look at this little list about who does what, and, and you find that there are descriptions in there. You know, there's words like gaffer. And best boy. I haven't got a clue what a best boy is. And, and don't Google best boy because you can come up with some very strange answers if you try and Google best boy. I haven't got a clue what they did. But I wonder what the film would look like if you took the role of best boy or gaffer out of that film. You see, because it's the people on stage that get the plaudits, the actors, the actresses, those who are at the front. They're the people who go on Graham Norton and get interviewed about the film. And they get made to look good but they're reliant upon the sound crew and the lighting crew and some of the ladies and the men, particularly the makeup artists and everything else as well, and the wardrobes to make them look good and those who sourced all the sets and the locations for the filming that takes place. Everyone has got an important part and a role to play, and unless they do that properly and fulfill that role, I wonder what the film would look like. I don't think it would be as good 
as it was. And this woman was prepared to play her part. She didn't, as we read, say anything very much, but she used her skill in order to serve the Lord. And then if you notice what else that we read about Dorcas or Tabitha, it says this, she became sick and died. When we were on holiday, I was watching a little bit of uh, the God Channel on TV. Uh, I was getting a bit worked up, one program I was watching. If it had been at home, I would have thrown something at the telly, but we were staying in a holiday cottage, and I thought, I better not throw this at the telly. But, you know, they were almost sort of peddling this thing, that if you are a Christian, it is your right and your entitlement that if you are a man or woman of faith, that you will be healthy, that you will be happy, and that you will live a long and fulfilled life. And I thought, have you never read Scripture, mate? Are you reading a different translation than me? Because you will find that being a Christian does not insulate you from the cares and the concerns and the pressures of life. And this woman became sick and she died. And it wasn't the fact that she just sort of passed out or fainted or something else of that nature. They knew she was dead. Whether she was blue and cold, they took her up, they washed and prepared the body as they would have done because they used to have an open casket and people used to come and pay their last respects. They hadn't actually put any oils or spices on the body, which is why they would normally have done to treat the body. I wonder why. She died. But I think, you know, that these Christians here were expectant about what could be done. And what happens? They send for Peter. Peter hadn't been very far away. He'd only been up the road in Lydda. They'd heard what happened to Aeneas. They'd heard what had taken place. And if you notice, they don't just say to Peter, Peter, could you get your diary out? Or ask your wife if you had one, because you, know, you may not remember. But are you got a spare time to take the funeral? She was a lovely lady, and we'd love you to come and do this funeral. We'd love to do her justice. No. They say, come quickly. There's an urgency about it. They want to get Peter there in order at the end of the day they think that a difference can be made to the life of Dorcas or even that when she died. Why? I think it's because she was very important to the church. It was her friends who wanted the miracle, not Dorcas. I've often said to my wife, when I go, please don't ask any you know, great charismatics at my funeral or Peter or anyone else like that. You know, if I'm in the glory, let me stay there, please. I don't want to come back again. I, I, when I get to heaven, I'm going to go and look her up and say, Dorcas, what did you think about being brought back to earth? Were you happy about being back in Joppa or Jaffa, as they call it now? Wouldn't you have sooner stayed in glory? I don't know whether she was upset by it or not. I don't know. But I think she truly was in the glory, and she came back again. It was there so that she could bless the church. It was there as a demonstration of God's power. Why doesn't it happen now? Perhaps we don't have the faith. I don't know. Perhaps in the last days, as the Lord pours out his spirit, there will be greater miracles that are done. I don't know. I went to see a friend of mine, Nick, his wife Rona, a few years ago. She had terminal cancer. And as we were sat there talking, and I said, Rona, would you like me to pray for you? And she said, yes, that'd be fine. She said, several people have prayed for a miracle, she said. But I realized that even the Lord heals me from this. One day I'll still get old and I'll still die. But, you know, the Lord did the greatest miracle in my life when I was 16. And I became a Christian and I gave my life to him. And my life has never been the same again. My eternity will never be the same again. So if my life comes to an end, which it did 
within a few weeks. She said, I still have got that great confidence and knowledge that I will be with the Lord forever. And I know Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is a whole chapter of great, great contrast. But I love that little verse, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Because, you know, although there is mourning here on earth, and I've been to some Christian funerals that make me want to cringe. Because, you know, there's still sorrow in the parting. There's still sorrow and sadness when a loved one is called home. What do we read in Thessalonians? That we grieve, but not as those without hope. When Jesus was stood by the grave of Lazarus, he wept. But we do so with that great hope in our hearts that it isn't just a time to mourn, but it's a time to dance as well. Dorcas was an amazing woman, a great disciple, one who the church needed back there in Joppa, one who was brought back to life. And if you put up, no, actually, sorry, let me just turn over before you do that. Let me tell you something else. Not only did we read about Dorcas, but also we read about other people as well in this passage. Have you noticed that when she died, what did they do? They sent two people to go and fetch Peter. When I was in school, as our school play, we were doing Romeo and Juliet. And our uh, drama teacher said, if you want to be in the play, would you like to come to auditions on this school lunchtime? I fancied myself as a bit of an actor. I thought the role of Romeo was made for me. <laughs> I went to the audition. Obviously, I don't know whether I just didn't read particularly well, whether he thought I didn't have the look, I don't know. But afterwards, he drew me apart, and Brian Smith, our drama teacher, said to me, Phil, he said, I've got the perfect role for you. I thought my talent had been recognized I thought the role of Romeo would be it. I was thinking of the number of people I could invite, you know, people I'd perhaps only met once to come and see me perform in this school play. And do you know what he said to me, Phil? The role that I think would be perfect you would be the role of Friar John. Has anybody read Romeo and Juliet and knows who Friar John is? You put up the next slide. That's what he looked like when they did the TV adaptation of Friar John, a rather portly man going a bit bold on top. We're in a monk's habit. And if you're not sure what happens in Friar John, but this is the way he sold it to me, he said that Friar John is the most important person in Romeo and Juliet. Do you know why? Well, I don't know if you can read the cartoon from that way, but Friar John is given this message. And Friar John has to take the message so that they know what is going on. That, in fact, that she's not really dead at all. It's only a big ruse that's taken place. And because Friar John doesn't deliver the message, what happens? There's death and carnage at the end. And that's how he sold it to me. Phil, you're made to play. I think I only had about, I don't know, maybe two lines in the whole play. But I said them so well. I was just thinking, there is a life here for me in Hollywood. Friar John. In fact, one day I turned out I forgot the sandals to go with my monk's habit. I wore my Dr. Martins on stage, but my, it was so long. But, but yeah, there I was. You see... In the scheme of things, it wasn't playing Romeo. In the scheme of things, it was a very small part. I did it very well, but it was only a small... But it was a crucial role. And because in that story, the letter wasn't delivered, Romeo and Juliet are dead. 
And did you notice in their story, they sent two men. We haven't got a clue what they were called. We haven't got a clue how old they were. We don't even know how they got there. But they were sent to take the message to Peter. What would have happened if that message hadn't been delivered? Dorcas would still have been dead. They could have said, hang on a second here. It was raining a bit like it was yesterday. I don't want to go out in that rain. I might get wet. She's dead. Doesn't make any difference. I'll wait a day or two and then I'll take the message. Or perhaps I can't do it. I'm a bit busy. I'll send somebody else to go. But you know, we haven't got a clue what they were called. But if they hadn't played their part in the story, how different the outcome may have been, just like Romeo and Juliet. Do you know, there are millions of people in the church today that don't get recognition, and if you ask their fellow church members, they probably don't even acknowledge or know the names of the people that do it, but because they so faithfully fulfill their roles, the church is enabled to function and operate well, and the Lord's will is done. Five minutes left just to talk about Peter. And if we put up the next slide about Peter, we can spend the whole time on this. But very briefly, what do we learn about Peter when he comes? Well, the first thing that we heard, and, and, oh, I told you I keep a book to ask questions when I get to heaven. I want to know whether Peter knew Dorcas. I, I like to think that Peter was probably wearing something that Dorcas had made, because perhaps she'd sent it to him. I, I haven't got a clue. Don't, that, you know, don't quote me on that, will you? I just like to think it's true. But when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask that. It might take me a few million years to get around to finding him and asking that because I'll be too busy worshipping the Lord in the meantime. But I'd like to know that. But he comes along, he fulfills the call that's given, and what happens? As he goes in and goes into the upper room, he clears the people out, and then he gets down on his knees. And, you know, and that is what has been described, I think, as the position of power. There is a humility there. There is a submission. It's not anything that he's going to do but it's what the Lord is about to do. I'd like to say I get down on my knees and pray quite often, but when you get a bit older and you play too much rugby, your knees do creak a bit, particularly late at night. But you know, our hearts can still be submissive. Our hearts can be on our knees. And then secondly as well, what happens? He doesn't have any sort of potions that he gives her or anything else of that nature. All he does is he just simply prays. Because it's nothing that he's going to do. But it's all about what the Lord is going to do. I don't know whether I've told you this before, but I'm 50 now, so I can repeat myself. But my dad has made a lasting power of attorney for health and welfare. If you don't know what that is, that's a document where you give somebody the ability to make decisions if you lose the ability to make those decisions for yourself. And I was talking to him, Dad, I said, what sort of thing do you want me to do? You know, if you're in hospital, you know, when do we turn off the life support machine? And he was thinking, oh, you just want your legacy, don't you? You know, something as well. I said, well, Dad, give me some sort of guidance about what you want. And do you know what my dad said to me? He said, I don't care if I can move out of the bed or not. I don't care what I can do for myself. But if I can still pray, leave me here. But if I lose that ability to pray, then just let me go home. So if my dad's lying there in hospital, I say, Dad, could you pray for us? And if he can't, well, I know what the answer is. But you know, there is great power in prayer. Now, my dad's been all over the place in his years, and he's now up and into his 90s and preaching and taking services and everything else. But he says the most powerful thing that he's ever done in his life is to pray. There is power in prayer. 
And then there was power in the faith that they had as well. It was the faith of the, the friends that called for Peter. And it was the faith of Peter as well. He just spoke the words. He prayed those words. And he had that belief that it would happen. And as he reached out this hand and helped her up. Oh, if I do that. You know, sometimes I pray for things, but I'm not sure I ever really believe them. So many things that I've prayed for, and I think, well, really, Lord? You can, can you do that? You know, I think Peter would have put my faith to shame. He just reached out her hand and helped her as he spoke the words, and up she came. And then there is the power of salvation. See, because the greater miracle that was on that day wasn't the fact that he, she was raised from the dead. But I think the greatest miracle was done in verse 42 is that many believed in the Lord. That was the difference. I don't know how long Dorcas lived for up. That's another question I'm going to ask when I get to heaven. I want to know whether she went home and she lived for five years or ten years or 15 years. I want to know how fit and healthy she was when she was raised from the dead. Did she still have all the same aches and pains and ailments that she had before she died? I, I want to know. I'm, I shouldn't say I find the Bible frustrating. But you know, I've got these questions to ask. But the greatest miracle wasn't the fact that she was brought back to life for 5, 10, 15 years. But it is the greatest miracle that their people had their lives changed. They had their eternal destinations changed. And I love this little verse that ends in verse 43, if you put up the next slide. What happens in Peter? Verse 43, almost as an afterthought it adds, And Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. And that is supposed to be the house in Joppa today, that that's what it looks like, where Simon the Tanner lived. Why is that important? Well, if you know your Old Testament, you know that Jews were forbidden from dealing with dead animals. What does a tanner do? You know, it isn't somebody who sort of sits there and lies out in the sun all day, they can get a suntan. But a tanner is someone there who creates leather. He has to work with carcasses, with animals, with dead animals, and with blood. It would have been ritually unclean. If you were a proper Jew, you had nothing to do with Simon. He was a social outcast. He was a pariah. If he said, come to my house, you'd say, oh, hang on a second. I know what happens if I go to your house. I can't go to the temple or the synagogue. Did Peter care less about that at all? No. He realized that it was different. He realized he was living differently. John 12, verse 43 says, The Pharisees, they loved praise from men more than they loved praise from God. See, Peter realized that he was about the Lord's business. He didn't worry what anybody else thought and what anyone else thought, thought about him. He'd only really worried about what the Lord thought about him. Isn't that a wonderful way to live our lives? The sad thing is, sadly, so many of us think what other people worry, what other people think about us, more than what God thinks about us. I'm sorry we didn't have time to do Aeneas, but what a lovely testimony that was. What a lovely eulogy for Dorcas or for Tabitha. She was a disciple who was always doing good. Do you know, I think some of the biggest lies I've heard in my life are at funerals. Some of the biggest rogues under the sun, suddenly when they die, turn into such wonderful people, and people say such nice things about you when you're dead. You know, occasionally I go to a funeral, and it's actually true what they've said about somebody, a bit like Brian Knowles at his funeral I took part in on Wednesday, that we could say that about Brian, that he was such a great man, full of the Holy Spirit and truth. But you know, it's true about Dorcas. It was true that she was a great disciple. I wonder what will be said about you when you're dead and gone. They may say he was a windy old so-and-so about me. He had so many words to use. 
Words can be important, but actions speak far more than that. The actions of Dorcas, that great disciple. The actions of Peter, that faithful disciple who knew the Lord's power and put it into practice in his life. Amen. We're going to sing a song in closing. What are we going to sing?